Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Well, thank you for that, ladies. We appreciate you coming to sing the Rejoicers. I no longer have to call them the seven ladies anymore. So (laughs) Um, John chapter 13 in your Bible. Um, Adrian grew up in Northside Baptist in Tifton. Um, Fred Evers became pastor there when she was 11. Um, she got to vote him in. That was one of her first things that she got to do as a member of the church. Um, so he was her pastor most of her life. Um, it was kind of Fred and Cindy's influence that led her to want to go into ministry of some of some kind. Um, and I remember when Adrian and I were dating and we came down here for the first time, it was... Labor Day weekend, we'd been dating about three months. We went to Northside on Sunday, um, and Fred um, started investing in me right when he met me. Like, we're, we're after church, and church is over, and we walk up and say hello, and he pulls me aside and just, you know, gets to know me some, and is already investing in me at that point. Um, and then when I came here to Tifton to, to, to Chula to be pastor, um, he started to mentor me. He, he would go out to lunch with me. He would talk through things with me. He'd check on how I was doing. He was a, um, he did that multiple times. He was known as a pastor to pastors. Um, during this time of COVID, I've had to figure out a lot of different things as a pastor. And multiple times he would call me and say, hey, you need any help with something? How, how are you doing with, with this? Um, I have a voicemail saved on my computer where he called me about 30 minutes after Haddon was born because he didn't know that he was born yet, but he had heard that we were in the hospital. He called to check on us, so I emailed that to myself so I'd always have it. Um, five months after we got here, so May of 2019, Adrian's mom called us one, after, one Sunday afternoon in tears um, because she um, said that Fred had announced that morning that he had esophagus cancer and had a year to live. Um, as you know, he did get better for a little bit of time, but he did eventually pass. He got COVID um, and just all the other things together with his cancer and with some other problems he was having finally um, took his life. Um, he had been given a year to live. He lived about 15 months. But when I heard that he had a year left to live, uh, I realized the clock was ticking. It was ticking. I had a year to mine out of him as much wisdom as I possibly could. Um, and so I, I, I started trying to do that. Um, I had a year to learn what was left that I could get from him. His hour had come. And where we're at in John, Jesus' hour has come. And he's going to spend this final night with his disciples, giving them every bit of wisdom that he possibly can because his hour has come. It's here. It's, it's time for him to die. 
And so John 13 through 17 are the, is the final night with his disciples. He's going to teach them constantly during that time. Um, he has the first 12 chapters have covered three and a half years of his ministry and ministering publicly. These next five chapters are going to cover a few hours of him ministering privately to his disciples. His hour has come. And so he's going to pour into them everything that he possibly can in this final moment. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand right now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my head and hands also. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. Let's stop there. We'll read 12 through 17 in a minute. Jesus loved his disciples. His hour had come. If you've paid attention as we, as we went through John, the idea of his hour coming has been a very clear thing that's popped up all over the place. He knew that his hour had come. The whole reason he had been born, the whole reason he had grown up as a child, grown up as a teenager, become a young adult and then a man, he is at that moment. He's been waiting for this moment. He knew he came for this. He would endure the worst death in human history for the greatest rescue in, the, in human history. He would do that. And it says he loved his disciples to the end. Two ideas there. First of all, he loved them to the end of his life, so to when he died. But secondly, he loved them to the utmost. He loved them as much as anybody could possibly love anyone because he's an infinite God. His love never runs out. It goes forever and ever and ever. He loved them beyond the end. He loved his 12 disciples to the end, and he loved you to the end. Do you understand the glory that Jesus loves you? We often sing, um, we, we often tell kids that Jesus loves them like a passing thought half the time. We, we, we sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a children's song, but it, it's one of the most doctrinally rich songs ever if you meditate on it. I mean, yeah, the lyrics aren't very profound, but, but it's the message, the deepest message in all the universe. The God of the universe loves you. The God of the universe. Think about him for a second. He's more worthy than everything else you have ever given your praise to combined. 
He has the power to speak and planets emerge. Like that's, that's who this God is. He's currently keeping every star in the universe burning all at once. He's currently causing every planet to rotate around our sun and in the other galaxies. He's currently keeping every human heart beating simultaneously at the same time and they never miss a beat. He's the one who thought up gravity. He's the one who thought up colors, red, blue, yellow, green. He's the one who thought up love and marriage and eating and drinking and oxygen. He's the one who thought that up. He he, he came up with that. He creates every single person and they're all different. Like it's not like he's got four model faces that he works from when he creates a human. Every face I'm looking at right now has a little bit of difference to it. And every face that you will see as you go throughout the world has a little bit different of a look to it. He never runs out of ideas on what to make a human face look like. Scripture says he can literally number every grain of sand on the sea. You ever gone to the beach and picked up a handful of sand and just let it run out of your hand? You have no idea how many grains are in that, do you? Probably way more than you think. And God knows every grain in that, every grain on Daytona Beach, every grain in Destin, every grain of sand on every beach of the world, on every, everywhere else in the world, the bottom of the ocean, the, the place where you go to get rocks and they have sand that you can get there. He knows every grain of sand on the planet and he knows that much. The more you think on God, the smaller and smaller you look. Don't you? The more insignificant you feel. You're not more incredible than a planet. Like, you're just not. You're not bigger than a planet. You're an insignificant little speck in the timeline of history. In fact, we're all less than that. George Washington is an insignificant speck in the timeline of history. We're even less than that. Despite all of that, though, the God who created the universe set his love on you. That you're the object of the love of Jesus. Scripture doesn't say Jesus had a special love for cattle or for Mars or for the Grand Canyon. He had a special love for you. Uh, A special love for you. Maybe Jesus loved you because you were more special than other humans. Maybe he loved you because you were more good than others, more beautiful than others. Maybe you deserved it more than evil men do. Maybe you deserved it more than they do. Not true, though. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you. That's a funny reason. It's not because, it's not because of anything in you that the Lord loved you. It's because he loved you. He loves you because he loves you. He, he loves you because he loves you. Deuteronomy 9.5, it's not because of righteousness that he loves you, because you're a stiff-necked people. I think I'd fall into that category, a stiff-necked people. And despite that, he loves you because he loves you. No other reason. He does not love you because you're more special or more good. No, actually, he loves you despite that you're none of those things. Romans 5 For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps even for a good person, one wouldn't even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you by having Christ die for you while you were ungodly. You were not righteous, and Christ died for you. He showed that love for you. So we can say the profound statement, Jesus loves you, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. 
So Jesus knows that the devil has put into Judas's heart to betray him, but in reality, God had given everything over to Jesus. Look at verse um, 3. God has given Jesus everything. So it's not that, it's not that Jesus is going to get his life taken by, by Judas and the devil and the people. He's going to lay it down. No, nobody takes it from him. He has all authority. He's going to lay it down. So what did he do? He knows that the moment has come. He knows that the devil has put it into Judas's heart to betray him. What does he do? He bends down and serves Notice how slow it goes, verses 4 and 5. How, how slow John works through what happens. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel, tied it around his waist. He took a basin. He poured water into it. He got down. He began to wash the disciples' feet. It's like John is floored by this. He's like, what is going on right now? I cannot believe this is happening. So he's watching it in slow motion. This would be like you're having uh, toilet trouble at your house, so you call your plumber, and the plumber says, yeah, we'll send somebody out, and you open your door, and it's like the governor or a senator or the president, and they're in like a, a blue jumpsuit with tools, and they walk in, and they say, I'm here to fix your toilet. And you're like, come again? Come again? You're like the most important person in the world. Why are you here to fix my toilet? That's what's going on here. This is the most powerful, most important being in all of existence, stooping down to do the most humiliating job at the time. Washing feet. I'm sure you know this was a job reserved for slaves, but even beyond that, it's just a nasty job. It's a nasty job. I mean, if I took my shoe off right now and showed you my foot, like, it's not going to look like the foot of the people in that time. Like, it, it may have some lint on it for my dress sock. It may have just a tiny bit of odor from being in a shoe. But, but like, they didn't have Nike and Carhartt then. So nobody's wearing closed-toed boots at this time. But it's a very dusty place in Israel. So they're walking down the road on a daily basis. Dust is getting on their feet. Also, there's no indoor plumbing at the time, so sewage is running through the street. So that's caking on top of the dust. Um, there's mud, so that's caking on top of that. More dust. Animals, as you know, just kind of use the bathroom wherever they want, so that's caking on top. More dust. That's what's on their feet. And the God of the universe bends down and washes that off. What washes that off? The king of all creation does that. And Jesus even washes the feet of Judas. He, he washes the feet of Judas, the one who the devil has already put in his heart to betray him. He's not below serving his enemy. He's not below serving the one who's going to turn his back on him. He does not hate his enemy. He does not criticize or harm his enemy. He serves his enemy. That, that church, church, that's the kind of attitude we need in a time like this, where the world's trying to make us enemies with every single person out there. We do not harm them. We do not criticize them. We do not want to kill them. We serve them. We, we serve them. So Jesus is going down the line. He washes Thomas's feet. He washes John's and Matthew's and Nathaniel's and Judas and James. And he gets to Peter. Peter's here and he goes to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, uh-uh. You're not doing this. You're not doing this, Jesus. In fact, verse 8 in the Greek is something like, you are never, ever, ever going to wash my feet. That's how it reads. Like, it's, he's serious about this. You're not going to do this, Jesus. It makes me think of a time when 
Jesus says, I'm going to go die. And he says, no, you're not going to do that. That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus has to call him Satan and say, get out of here. Um, Peter's very passionate about honoring Christ. But he can't see beyond his own view of, of Christ of how to honor him. So there might be ways outside of what Peter thinks that Christ is going to be glorified. And it's in washing feet. Peter would never see this as glorious. But Jesus in being humble shows true greatness in doing this. So Peter has to immediately put his foot in his mouth. And so he just says, oh, I can't be a part of you if you don't wash my feet. Okay, give me, just give me a bath. Like, just cover me in water. Because I want to be a part of you. I want you, I want to be yours. And Peter wants to be with Jesus. He, he wants to be with him. He, he wants that. And Jesus says, you don't need a bath, Peter. You don't need that. You're already clean. You're already clean. You only need your feet washed. Verse 10, not every one of you is clean, but you're clean. Not, not every one of you is clean. Judas is not clean. He's not going to say that yet, but, but you're clean, Peter. You, you, don't need to be, you don't need a bath. So what does that mean? Well, when we're saved, we're cleansed. You, you know that when, when we're saved, we're cleansed of our sins. We're made clean forever. But if you know Jesus, you have no more filth on you, no matter how much you fail, no matter how much down in the dumps you feel, no matter how much you feel down and out, you're completely clean. You're washed clean. You only need your feet washed. You, you, you only need your feet washed. Growing up, I saw a couple people get baptized multiple times in my church. Like, like it felt like they were getting baptized every two years. And um, they would, what, what would happen is they would get really distant from the Lord. They would recommit their lives in front of the church and they'd get baptized again. All right, listen, you don't need to be baptized multiple times. All right, you don't. I've been baptized twice because the first time was I was not saved. You, you need to be baptized once after you were saved and that's it. If you're away from the Lord right now, but you're saved and you've been baptized after you're saved, just come back to the Lord. We don't need to dunk you again. Just come back. It's this idea, though, washing feet, that if you walk in the world, you're going to pick up dirt on your feet, and you need Jesus to cleanse you. You need to regularly be renewed from the things of the world, the world's influence over you. So how do we get our feet washed? Well, some churches do actual foot washings. Um, it's one of their ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and feet washing. We only have the first two. Um, foot washing, I think, in this time doesn't carry the, the servanthood that it did then. Um, so what does it mean? Well, let me give you three ways that Jesus can renew you spiritually in your life. First of all, you need a daily quiet time. You need to spend time every day reading your Bible and praying. You get your heart right with God every morning or evening, whenever you do it. You hear from God and you speak to God. Secondly, confess your sins. 1 John 1, 9. If anyone, um, if anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Confess your sins to God and confess your sins to someone else. Do you know the freedom that comes from confessing your sins to another person? It makes you no longer be, keep it all bottled up like there's someone out there who understands you and understands what you're struggling with. Like David said in Psalm 32, like when I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away. Like I felt like I was going to die. When I confessed him, wow, it was such freedom. So have somebody in your life that you can regularly confess your sins to. They can confess theirs to you and you can pray for one another and keep each other accountable. You need that. And thirdly, gather with God's people, what we're doing right now. We gather together to encourage and strengthen one another, to, and then we scatter out into the world as God's witnesses. You need that. 
So Jesus does this. Now look at 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you keep them. We, he, he, we should let Jesus wash our feet, but we should also wash each other's feet. We certainly serve the world, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about washing each other's feet in the church. We certainly go out and serve the world. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but he's saying, wash each other's feet. He's telling the disciples to serve each other in that way. We serve each other in the church. Now, in one sense, that's, that's of course, how we often think of it as stacking chairs. Yeah, of course. But, but in another sense, it's considering the needs of others above yourself and considering their spiritual needs, not just their physical needs. Because the reality is the church in America has been turned into a consumer event. A consumer, a, a consumer event. People come and they expect their wants and their desires to be met. In some churches, they actually expect if they pay a tithe, they should get what they want. They're paying their dues to the country club. Right, so they come in and they think, I get to pick and choose what I'm involved with here. And I get to pick and choose what goes on here. So I expect my favorite style of music to be played and the ones that I don't like to not be played. I expect everybody else to get in line with what I want. I expect the preacher to not preach longer than 30 minutes. Not going to happen today, I'm sorry. I expect there to be everything I like and everything exciting for my kids. If I'm a teenager, I expect to not be bored. Um, I, I expect them to do activities and programs that I have always known in church. And if they ever consider doing anything new or different, they might as well have denied Jesus. If my wants are not getting met, I will leave and go find another church that will pamper me better than this one. Let's call that what it is. That view of church is both sinful and satanic. Because that's the attitude of the devil. Give me what I want. Let me sit on God's throne because I deserve to sit there. That Jesus has the complete exact opposite attitude. He gets off the throne. He comes down, bends down, and serves in the most degrading way. Serves in the most degrading way. That's the heart of God. We serve each other. We look out for the needs of others. We put aside our preferences for the benefit of others. We get down and we wash filthy feet. We serve in that way. So when the pastor preaches over how long we want, we discipline ourselves to listen and take to heart what he says. We don't gripe and complain about how much we don't like something our church does. We roll up our sleeves and we say, how can I work to make that better? We, if over time people come to our church and 10 years from now it looks completely different than it did 20 years ago, we rejoice that people are growing in their faith. We make ourselves willing to try new things, even if we don't understand them, so that people may grow in their faith. There was a church a few years ago. Um, it was a church kind of like ours, about the same size as ours, mostly older congregation, but had several young people in it. The pastor was a younger guy, um, and they had a musician come to perform a concert at their church. 
Um, I don't think it was on Sunday morning. I think it was like a Thursday night or something. And people packed the place. I mean, older people came, younger people came, younger people brought all their friends because they knew who this musician was. Um, So they come in there and it turns out this guy is a, um, not a Christian rock and roller, but kind of close. But he had really solid songs. Like his songs had incredible theology in them, but it was rock and roll. So it was loud. The young people were so excited about it. They loved it. They thought it was incredible. They're clapping. They're singing along. They're excited. And the older people were sitting there with a scowl on their face most of the time. This is a church I actually know. This isn't something I'm making up. And I have a friend that was there that night, and she went up to an older lady in the church afterwards, and she said, what do you think about tonight? And the older lady said, it's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. But if it gets young people to come to church and makes them excited about Jesus, I will listen to it. That's the attitude we should have at church. I don't like what we're doing, but if it gets more people to come to church and worship Jesus, I will put up with it and I will do the best I can to enjoy it. A servant is not above his master. We're not above Jesus. Our master Jesus got down to the lowest level possible. We're not above doing that. Therefore, we do that. Look at verse 31. We're going to come back to 18 through 30 in a couple weeks. 31 through 35, because it kind of connects to what happens here. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, and I, will, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, it's the mark of a Christian. Love. Love. It's continuing the idea that we, that we love one another as Jesus have, has loved us. We serve one another in the lowest way possible. That's going to be made clear pretty soon in John by Jesus going to the cross. He's going to be the God of the universe hanging in humiliation on a tree. The worst death imaginable. So because of that, we love each other in the church in such a way that it's a witness to the world. We love each other as Christ loved us, and that's a radical way. The way we love each other in church is meant to be a picture of, to the world of love like nothing else. L- love like nothing else. Though our world talks a lot about love, the type of love that Jesus calls the church to is like nothing the world has ever seen. Like, like nothing the world has ever seen. Our world is all about love, but it's not this kind of radical love. Love that, is, that completely sets itself aside for the benefit of others. Love that is willing to do the nastiest job for another person. That's the love that Jesus called us to. We verbally share the gospel with the world. We back it up with that kind of love. So may the world look at us, Mount Zion, and see something they've never seen before. May may they see us caring for one another and say, there's something about this Jesus they believe in. He's different than the Jesus I thought I had heard about. May they see us putting each other ahead of, uh, of ourselves and say, there's something about that gospel they believe. May they see our marriages and say, I want my marriage to look like that. Those people don't look like the marriages on the sitcoms. They look much different. 
May they see the way we parent our children and say, that's something I've never seen before. Those parents don't act like their kids are an annoyance. They act like their kids are beloved. Our love is meant to reflect the love of Christ. It's the sun and the moon. Jesus is the sun. We're the moon. The moon has no light in itself. It reflects the sun. We do this to show the world that there is validity to the gospel that we believe. So let us have that kind of love. Let us be willing to get down and wash feet. Because verse 17 says, when we do that, we will truly be blessed. Let's pray. Father, as I often sing to Haddon, what, what love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. We stood neath a debt that we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. Your mercy is so much more than our greatest sin. That is the love that you showed us, and that is the love that we are to show the church and the world. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Caleb's going to